the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I'm co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credit to nonprofits. Our line of credit is easy, fast, and expensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan. If you would like to learn more about the program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. Or feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Robin Cabral from Development Consulting Solutions. Robin uh, is the fundraising coach and consultant who provides value-added, in-term, hands-on, remote, and coaching support with razor-sharp monthly result objectives and benchmark deliverables. With her over 25 years of experience, she has raised millions of dollars for small to mid-sized organizations, and she focuses her coaching experiences on the growing people, performance, and purpose model used by Performance Consultants International. She serves as a sounding board, change agent, and extra staff person for those new to fundraising, wanting to excel in their fundraising job or role, or to advance their career. She serves both fund, excuse me, she serves both found fundraising professionals and executive directors alike. Her writings appear in Nonprofit Pro, Massachusetts Nonprofit News, Charity Channel, Bloomerang, Donor Search, Nonprofit Expert, Donor Perfect, Nonprofit li- Learning Library, and many other blogs. Robin, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Thank you for having me again. Thank you. So, you know, this time, Robin is a second time uh, guest that I asked to come back on board because of, you know, how good I thought you know, the first one went, and there's always certain topics in my mind that I think, um, you know, I, if I find the right guest, I want them to talk about this because I think it's really, really important. And, you know, this area uh, that we're going to be talking about today's podcast is about goal setting and excellent execution for nonprofits. Um, I specifically asked Robin to, to talk about this subject matter because, you know, really I think, the, the key to any organization, rather it be a nonprofit, rather it be a business, is is really ex uh, excellent execution. You know, it's you know it's the thing that is the most uh, um, um, least looked at and most important, I, I believe, in any type of uh, organization. So, so Robin. Um, when I asked you to kind of talk about this topic of goal setting and excellent execution, what was your reaction? Well, I think, you know, it's so critically important, particularly for um, smaller to mid-sized not-for-profits that really just do the same old, same old every year. Um, and I think, you know, particularly this year with the pandemic, that has really put a shock in a lot of folks' systems to really stop and say, well, we can't continue to do the same old, same old. So goal setting and um, excellent execution 
go hand in hand, right? Yes. Um, and it goes back to evaluating and analyzing what has been successful and not successful in the past to develop a good plan with goals and objectives and execute on that plan. So I think they're all tied together. And um, and I think it's such a, an important topic, particularly as hopefully we move out of this pandemic. I see some light at the end of the tunnel um, to think about um, what were some learning uh, lessons and what can we take moving forward, if that makes any sense at all. So let's, what do you think is some of the basics of, of great goal setting and excellent, excellent execution is? I mean, you could start off by goal setting first. What do you think are some of the key elements in, in, in you know, really good goal setting? Yeah, well, I even, if I can back up and say, I even ask groups when I go in and do development or fundraising planning for them, I have them step back and audit everything that they've done in the past. And it's a good idea to start from that perspective and say, okay, in the last year or the last several years, what has worked and what has not worked, right? Because you want to be able to do more of what's working and do less of what's not working. So starting from um, having a baseline. I say you don't go to the doctors. The doctor, when you go to the doctor, he takes your blood pressure. And when you go to a new doctor, he does your blood work, your blood pressure, he goes through all of your vitals and gets a baseline. So if a group doesn't already have an existing baseline for key metrics, um, that's a great place to start. And then looking at what kind of progress have you made um, in your baseline, like moving your baseline forward, hopefully not backwards, but moving it forward. And then from there, setting some real good goals that, as we all know, goals should be smart, right? Specific, measurable, actionable, and uh, have a time frame associated with them. So that's how I would actually approach this is looking back, looking at what worked, what didn't, um, and then setting some smart objectives based upon smart goals based upon that, and then having objectives, you know. Um, so, yeah, does that make sense to you? Oh yeah, completely. Because uh, so, I mean, sometimes you have to learn what you did really well at, but then you got you know. Because I think we all focus on the things that we didn't do well at, right. um, and you know, you also have to focus. And I think it's so. It probably starts to tell you a little bit about the culture of your nonprofit. I mean, culture is one of the most underrated parts of any organization. Understanding your culture is key to really building a great, consistent, uh, you know, effort. Yeah. So I, I agree with you, you know, going back, it's a nice starting point too, because as I guess as a consultant too, you, you kind of get to know the, the nonprofit strengths and weaknesses, correct? Yeah. Well, I actually, so I actually do a lot of assessments and, and fundraising plans for organizations. And um, I have a tool that I use that basically takes them um, and measures them against best practices in the field. So I can say, okay, this person or this organization um, really needs to be doing more of this to get to best practices or they're yeah. already at this in terms of best practices. And there's also several, I, I look at four um, health metrics for a fundraising program, four key ones that I look at. And those are the ones that I look at building 
goals around, particularly in terms of um, moving those metrics forward. So there's, there's four of them that have to do around donor retention, donor acquisition, donor upgrades. So really setting goals around uh, those four key metrics, because in my estimation, if you're not moving those metrics forward, then you have a slowly dying fundraising program. So, um, so yeah, there are a lot of variables that I tend to look at. One of them is kind of overall best practices, and then the other is where are we at in terms of these important metrics. What percentage of the time do you think you go into a consulting assignment for the first time and the nonprofit ha- doesn't set go- hasn't set any goals? Um, and then, of course, well, let's just say that first. How many, what percentage of the time have you found that they haven't really done any of that work before? Yeah, well, for the for most of my, I would say probably like 99% of the groups. Wow. Yeah, well, I tend to specialize in small to mid-size, right? So these are not like the um, charity waters of the world that are more sophisticated in their efforts. Um, so I would say, I, and I get called in to do this, so I get called in um, specifically to develop these fundraising plans and do these audits. Um, so I would say almost 100% of them are, are operating um, as they always have, like the same old, same old. Um, yeah. And they've re- really never sat back and concretely developed um, goals and objectives. So. For instance, I am ready to hand off three fundraising plans this week alone to different groups, uh, three different groups. So um, that goes to show you, number one, the pandemic has really caused groups to stop and say, okay, how can we be doing things better or differently? And then, um, and then the other piece of that is what goals and objectives should we be setting? So yeah, like 99% of them. I, I, I'm shocked, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, if you would think that <clears throat> you'd be refining things and, and, but I, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine just running an organization and not, you yeah. know, having to set goals. Yeah, so right? it's, it's pretty, and then when, you know, part of what I ask them as when I use this tool according to best practices is how many of you have strategic plans in place? And while that is not as high, um, it's still shockingly high how many groups are operating without um, a strategic plan in place um, um, and uh, using that as an operational plan to move their organizations forward on a yearly basis. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me as much. And then then the, the third part about that is execution. And to me, that's, you know, setting goals is easy. Setting, having a strategic plan, a little easy, not as easy, uh, but, you know, easier. But the, the hardest part to me is actually uh, reviewing, sticking to, and really following up on your strategic plan. Yeah. And that's the execution yeah. part of it. And that's, you know, that's where the discipline really comes into play. Yeah, um, sure what, 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 when you're talking about... Um, execution um and 
what is your advice to clients about making sure they they stay the course? What, yeah. what are some of the things that you say to them and say, listen, these are the best practices. If you want to follow your strategic plan, you know, let, you know, what are some of the things that are key ingredients in that? Yeah, so that's a great point. And when I do these fundraising plans and put them together, I include an implementation plan with it as part of it. Um, so my, some of my recommendations is that, you know, the biggest thing that can happen, and, and I didn't coin this term, someone else did, but your plan becomes credenza-ware, right? It sits up on the top of the, your credenza in your office and never goes anywhere. So, you know, for me, I say that for a fundraising plan that the chief development officer should operationalize this, right? And I, in fact, go a step further. When I hand over a long-range plan, usually my plans are like two to three years out, but I will give them a year operational plan just to get them up and running, right? So I will pull out a year's worth of that plan and put it into a short-range plan for those organizations. And that's what I recommend that the development officer does, right? They look at the plan and the timelines and they say, okay, what can we realistically get done in a year? And that plan becomes the discussion focal point of all of their kind of team meetings so that they're taking it out every month and saying, where are we at in terms of some of the key benchmarks? What adjustments do we need to make to keep our plan on course? Now, I say to some organizations that don't have development officers that may have an executive director, well, your board ideally needs to be looking at a plan quarterly and saying, where are we at with this plan, right? And that should be charged to a fundraising committee if you have one. And that's what they should be looking at for their meetings is how do we continue to move this plan forward? So having some kind of structure around, number one, operationalizing the plan so that it just doesn't stay as this long range plan, but actually gets built into the year plan, to the yearly plan, and then developing um, agenda items, right? This should be a standing agenda item is updates on fundraising plan, goals and objectives. You know, where are we at? Um, where are we at in terms of meeting benchmarks, whether that's monthly as a staff or quarterly as a fundraising committee or board? Um, just keeping that front and center so that it's always part of the discussions. Now, I have groups that say to me, well, geez, Robin, you just gave us this very long, robust three year plan. You know, there's no way that we're going to get this all accomplished. And I say, that's fine, right? That's okay but make sure that you operationalize pieces of it and continue to move it forward, right? It's a plan, right? We don't expect you to do everything in it, but if you can operationalize portions of it that you can have the greatest leverage with, then absolutely do that. So does that, does that, uh, that make sense to you? I mean, is that yeah? Uh, all all that except other than the um, like I I'm, I'm I, I tend to be a very driven person. So for me, I'm not going to put a plan in place. I'm not going to achieve. So you know, it, it needs to be. If I'm going to put a plan in place, it's going to get achieved. Right. Um, so it's you know, so putting things there that 
you know, that maybe I may not get to would not be something that it would be, uh, I mean, maybe I'm uh, being, uh, what's the right word? Uh, Pollyanna about it. Right, you know? right. But, but um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I think the thing that, so there's, I mean, there are a couple of things that I've noticed, you know, in, in, in my, you know, strategic planning and stuff like that. Um, I, 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 100% agree with you that, um, that when you're a smaller organization, uh, planning goes out the window, but when you start becoming a bigger organization, like the more successful the organization, the more planning there is and the more X, the better the execution is of the plan. So if you want to be a better organization, if you want to be a bigger organization, if you want to be an organization that lasts, the test of time, then you want to get to the planning and execution part as quickly as you can. Yes, yeah. Um, so that's that's the number one observation I've uh, you know I've made. Number two is execution is hard. Yes. Because it's boring. Yes. You know what's what's fun is coming up with new ideas. Right. And the problem is is when you come up with your plan and you're you're executing it and you're and you really, really want to stay focused on that plan, you know, you get the idea creep that comes in and that's like the shiny new object that comes up. And, and, you know, sometimes there's people in your organization that are just, um, the, the, um, idea factories yes, yeah. and they get everybody else going, Oh, well let's do this and let's do that and let's do this. And then, your plan is there. So the, so one of the two things that I yeah. think have, have helped me um, when I've been on nonprofit boards or when I've uh, built the companies I've built has been um, having a two things. One of them is either having a consistent time every month when I go back over my plan and I really review either with my team or just myself how are we doing? Just some point for a reminder. The second thing that is really helpful is really to have a third party person, uh, yeah. a, a coach like yourself yeah. to me, you know, hold people accountable. Yes. Yeah. You know? Because, you know, you're the one who's on the outside who can really say, you know what? You're really not doing this, right? You know, you're not doing a good job on this, and you know, I'm sure you put it in a nicer way. <laughs> um, so, you know, I I think, um, you know, the execution part is, I I mean, I don't know. I would rather be part of an organization. So I think it's my, my I might be just my personality, and that is, I'd rather be part of an organization that plans and executes instead of an organization that goes on the seat of its pants, comes up with all these ideas and, and then tries to get it done. It, I, I don't like changing directions on a constant basis. Yeah. 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 Well, we've had to do that in the last year, right? That's, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, I just actually just wrote an article, uh, not a wrote an article. I was, I was, I was being interviewed for an article for Forbes magazine and, and uh, they asked about, you know, what did this crisis teach you? And, you know, in this case, that when they say crisis, they meant COVID, of course, and uh, underlying for that is the recession. Right. Um, and, you know, my business partner and I have been, you know, 
building companies for 25 years, uh, when we prepared uh, for, we actually, for this company, Financing Solutions, we, you know, which we started in 2010, we prepared what we would do during a recession. Ah, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So almost like a, I don't want to say a crisis plan, but uh, right. yeah, right, right, right. So, uh, so, I mean, you couldn't predict that a, that a, that the COVID would come, but you certainly should be predicting that once every 10 years, at least there's going to be a recession in the United States. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. So. Well, you bring up a, a couple of interesting things that I've kind of starred here as you were talking. Number one, I, I, you know, we could not predict a COVID, but here's where I think even myself fell down, right? Like as boards of directors or our organizations have boards of directors and, you know, their governance responsibility is to do what you're doing, is to say, what is out there on the horizon that we should be talking about from a larger level? So can we look back in hindsight and say, you know, in December or January of last year, someone in our organization could have said, imagine what would happen if that virus that we're seeing in China were to, were to go throughout the world? Like, are we planned for some kind of crisis like that? How would we swap? How would we pivot operations? But I can guarantee you, even myself sitting there looking at, um, what we were seeing in China at the end of December in this virus that was just starting to be talked about. And I mean, even before that, I mean, you know, even before Italy got locked down, did we say to ourselves, wow, this thing is like cruising through Europe now. What does this mean if this were to come to the United States and impact us in a holistic way, right? So how do we do those risk assessments at an organizational, are we doing those risk assessments? Is that a lesson that we can take forward into the future to say, geez, we shouldn't have these, you know, these little tiny um, spectacles on that are just looking at what happens within our organization, but also what's happen happening on a regulatory um, perspective that may impact our organization. Some bills, some regulations, some viruses that are out there in the world um, or some trends that we're seeing financially in other countries that may impact um, us in the future. You know, so do, is our organization doing those bigger scans um, in terms of risk assessment? So that was one area that I thought, wow, you're really hitting on something, Stephen, there that, you know, I thought about often like, geez, imagine if we started talking about, you know, this COVID-19, before COVID-19 became um, such a, what it is today, right? Well, certainly, certainly Bill Gates did. Right. Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates had been working on this project for, for 10 years. It really was uh, of interest to him. He really felt that, um, uh, that, he, that the, that a massive pandemic, um, was going to come. Right. And, right. and he and he felt that because throughout our history, every 100 years, a pandemic has come. Right, right. And and uh so and here we go. Here's a good example of all right, here was somebody who was planning and he had the the ears of a lot of organizations and and you know 
and uh, and then the execution fell. Um, just there was no execution. Yeah, right. You know, not on his part, right? But on 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 the various different government agencies' parts, um, and so you know. But I think you bring up a good point. I mean, I think so. I, I think uh, hopefully that most of us as leaders are saying to ourselves, and what can I learn from this lesson? Yes. What can I learn from COVID? What can I learn from a recession? Right. Um, And I think the number one thing is, you know, plan. And, and, and then, uh, you know, and, and I think that, you know, uh, and, and what does that mean? I think on your calendar, uh, if you if you a lot of times you, if you're doing your count your plan if you do your strategic plan update or you're doing it in December, put a reminder in Outlook right, or you know right. your calendar. Put a reminder there that pops up that says, "Plan for the unexpected." Yeah. What right. what could come what could come up, and have those discussions. You know what happens if we lose. You know what happens if we lose our largest. Um, fundraising uh, our, our largest donor what happens if we lose the source of our funds from the state you know what do we do right right uh, and, and to do those risk assessments that's part of the planning process is to say right. you know what is this what are the state priorities and how will this impact in terms of our current contracted levels and so forth um yeah i, I see far too few groups even myself saying What's happening on the bigger horizon out there, and how does this impact us? So, great point. So, when it comes to you know, I, I've kind of mentioned earlier that uh, you know, I really believe that execution is a key ingredient. What are some of the suggestions you have for an organization to be great at execution? Yeah, well, I love your idea. That was the second point about having someone like a third-party person hold you accountable. Um, Oftentimes, I get hired beyond the plan. So I get hired for that coaching aspect of it to help groups either, number one, get aspects of the plan implemented, so bringing in a third party for implementa- outsourced implementation of it or um, for coaching support. And, you know, I say coaching is not a bad thing. Coaching is a good thing. Most, uh, well, all professional sports teams have a coach, right? Like you wouldn't operate at that level without having a coach along the sidelines to help direct you in the next play. So why wouldn't you have a coach who can hold you accountable to make sure that you do get implementation um, going because a plan is only a plan, but if it never gets implemented, really, what is it except a waste of time and effort and money, right? A waste of resources. So, um, so that was an excellent um, call out that you made around. Well, I, I had a coach for nine years yeah. and, and it made a big difference. And listen, the coach should be able to pay for themselves. Right. So whatever you're paying for the coach, you know, they should be able to um, do, do their job so well that um, that your organization would have is getting more money 
through its fundraising efforts, um, through whatever uh, being more efficient, uh, through producing better results in their your services that you're helping people with, um, that makes more than makes up for what you pay in a coach. Abs- I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think there's been this perhaps stigma in the not-for-profit world that either coaches are extravagant, like, you know, um, non-essential kinds of things, or if you have a coach, it's because you're failing, right? Like you need someone to direct you and help you. But in essence, um, I've had a personal life coach for the last four years, and I would never have made some of the decisions or done some of the things if I didn't have someone holding me accountable to my homework. Right? Yeah, I think I think one of the things too, uh, Robin, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you no, off. No, no, please do, please do. I, I, my guess is, um, you know, it's the money, it's it's the money that uh, a coach costs. Yeah, you know? yeah. My guess is that someone's like, you know, I, you know, do I do I want to spend a thousand dollars a month, whatever it is, you know, for a, a coach, um, and, and you know that. For for a coach to come in and help our organization, I think I think it's the money is the yeah, issue. Probably you're probably right, right? Um, and it comes from that scarcity um, perspective that many not for profits have, right? Like um, instead of investing in themselves, there how do we de de invest, right? To have a, a low budget or a low admin or or what have you. So um, so yeah, I think that kind of goes hand in hand. I mean, am I right in saying? I mean, I'm not right. Um, I, my coach charged me fourteen hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, for a coach to come into a smaller nonprofit, if they're if they're good, um, what do they normally charge? Well, it, it, yeah, it could be it could be lower than that, right? Or it could be even higher, depending upon you know how much the coach is coaching. Um, their expertise level, certifications, those kinds of things. You know, I would caution and say there are a lot of coaches out there who say they're coaches, but don't have the credentialing behind them. So that's, I would caution and say, if you are a not-for-profit, look for someone that has, yes, you're going to pay more, but has credentials through something like the International Coaching Federation um, and has a certification in coaching and is a certified coach, right? So um, what I fear is that there are a lot of folks who are hanging the hat out there and um, and are calling themselves coaches but don't have the expertise and the credentials around um, coaching as a profession, if that makes any sense. Um, it, it does. And then also I'm sure that you, you should be interviewing people as right. well. You know, saying, Does this person make any sense? You know, I know one of the biggest things that I uh, see often is someone who hangs there. My, what my coach told me was um, she said she thought for the first five years, her coaching was wasn't very good. Really? Yeah. And she saw it. She said, you know, you have to have somebody who's been doing it for, for being a coach and has had a number of clients for at least five years before they're going to be of any value to anybody. And then the second part I've noticed too, is, you know, people who really don't have uh, as much experience, um, not at coaching, but at doing what they're, doing so in this case you know does the coach you're looking for 
have they been in the nonprofit sector for a long period of time? Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, with with what I find, because I, I interview a lot of, of coaches on this um, podcast, and what I find is there are a lot of coaches, and they have a lot of experience. Like uh, it seems to be like you go, you you work at a nonprofit. You build it, you do it again, you do it again. And then when you get into your 50s and 60s and you know, beyond, you kind of move into the coaching route. And um, so they, they, the, the coaches I've uh, had on this podcast have been very experienced and very, very good, I thought. So, um, so there, there are quite a number of coaches out there, I think, as well. Yeah. So, I mean, Robin, I mean, you know – have you been coaching for a while? I have been coaching now since 2016. Um, but I started out as just hanging my hat saying I was a coach and then had a p- particular interest in career coaching of fundraisers. So I went and got took some courses and became certified as a career coach, right? And that's when you learn all of the different dynamics of coaching relationships too as well, right? Like how do you handle certain situations? So yeah, that's interesting how um, how you say, she was saying that you need that five years experience, which, you know, I can see, I can, you know, I work with um, a bunch of coaches um, and I see folks when I observe them who really are telling their clients what to do and not helping them live into themselves doing it or coming up with the strategies. So there's a difference, right? There's a difference between consulting and there's a difference between coaching. Um, and so that's where I, I, I think what you're saying, that five years of experience as a coach will help you, number one, to change hats quickly from being a consultant who advises to being a coach who helps someone grow into their own skill sets and their own capacity and their own innate abilities, right? Because that's really what coaching is about, is helping someone to do that and holding them accountable to doing that, right? Um, so that's a really, really great point. I love too, the, the third thing that you said was the idea factory, right? The shiny new object that can kind of move us away from execution or away from our plan. Um, and who are those people in the not-for-profits that are the idea factories? They're the board members, right? That come up to us and say, oh, but such and such organization did it this way. Or I think we should do it that way instead of listening to the professional or following the plan, right? So I see that a lot, the idea factory. I was just um, looking at a client's appeal letter saying, well, what happened to the bolds and underlines in it that I put in it? Oh, well, we didn't think it looked good. Well, look is look is not going to, art is not going to get you fundraising best practice, right? So you can have a bunch of artists who are saying, this looks good, but that's not fundraising best practice. Same thing with, we came up with this plan based upon what worked, but then the idea factory, the board or whomever, group of whatever, comes in and says, well, you know, so-and-so organization down the street is doing it this way, so why don't we try that? Um, When in essence, that may not be what's best for the organization 
or even best practices. So I love how you call that out. Um, how do you stay true to the plan, the goals and objectives when you have an idea factory who consistently comes to meetings and says, let's try this or look at this or look at that. Look at this new piece of software that we should be looking at. So yeah. The problem too, I think with a nonprofit is it almost like the, you have you have two leaders and then you have some mini leaders and then you have employees and, you know, cause you have the board of directors, you know, the chairman, of, the chairman of the board, and then you have the executive director. Right. 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 And so, you know, I think a lot of times maybe the executive director, depending on the organization, you know, expects the chairman of the board to maybe coach them or, you know, depending if the executive director is the founder of the organization has really kind of put together the board based on all, all the people she knows is, is the one who's coaching the, the um, board of directors, you know, and that's why, you know, having that third party uh, person out there who can kind of, you know, cut through all of that is important as well. So I can see where the dynamics of a board of directors and executive director can be a big problem with, yeah. um, you know, accountability, who's running the show, you know, yeah. uh, honest, objective opinions, you know, um, I can see where, you know, a coach would be, I mean, who can really, I, I listen, I can really honestly think and say this is, could you, could you really imagine bringing a coach on, spending a thousand dollars a month and not being a better organization in 12 months. I, mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, for $12,000 and I don't know what the cost would be. Um, I think it's kind of a no brainer to be honest. Yeah. Right. $12,000 is not a lot of money, honestly. It's not really right. It's not. And then the other, um, tension that exists is like if you have a full-time fundraiser on staff and then you've got the full-time fundraiser, who was hired for their expertise and best practices. And then you've got the executive director. And then on top of that, you've got the board of directors, or you may have the fundraising committee, and then you have the board of directors. Yeah. So there's all these layers of tension that exists um, where those kinds of things can happen, right? Yeah, you can see where the exec uh, the execution breaks down right yeah, there. Yeah, right, right. right? I mean, if it's just one person doing something, and you say, "Here, go do this," right, it, it gets done. Right, right, right. But it gets complicated when you have multiple people who who haven't been put into a direction, who aren't clear as to what everyone's role is and what's everyone's responsibility. And that's where the execution kind of breaks down. And uh, listen, this this podcast wasn't meant to be about selling anybody on a coach. <laughs> you know, um, I think I think what it's trying to illustrate, what I'm trying to illustrate, is that it's very, very, very hard to do the execution because um, there are multiple things that are going on in an, a nonprofit, and it causes project creep it causes the shiny new object syndrome it causes um you know a, a variety of different things it's very very hard to stay focused for a year for two years for three years on a strategic plan once you even come up with it yeah well that's the thing right and what we know and not for profits or what I know from my experience being in many small to mid-size is number one, 
we're all wearing lots of hats, right? And so the executive director may actually be out cleaning bathrooms someday, who knows, right? Or picking up in the kitchen. And so there are all these little fires that happen in our work with our clients, with pandemics, with whatever that can take our focus very, very quickly off of the off of the prize, right? Like off of that plan. And so because all these fires are happening and we don't have people holding us accountable, it's just so easy to forget about it. I, you know, I was hired by my local community foundation to coach a group, a cohort. Um, and one of the greatest compliments I think they could give me, Stephen, was saying, it's like going to the principal's office or knowing that you're going to go to the principal's <laughs> office every two weeks. Yeah. So they felt like by me sending them an email saying, hey, how are things going? It was like a cue to them to say, oh my gosh, we got to focus on our action plan for the week. And so that redirected them, their attention off of the crisis or what was happening back to, oh my goodness, we have to have this call with Robin and she's going to ask us what we got done. Yep. So it helped a lot of the groups just to stay focused despite everything. I mean, one of the groups... Here's a great example of a fire that happened. One of the groups was there, they had a new landlord all of a sudden, and the landlord saying to them, your lease is up at the end of the month, and you either need to pay the new rent or get out. Um, right? So that those are the kinds of things that happen on a on a weekly basis to an executive director or to a board or to whomever. And, um, and so all of a sudden, the, pl the big plan goes out the window, right? Until Robin says, how are you doing? And then they go, oh, my goodness, here's another fire. That woman named Robin, the coach, right? <laughs> yeah. So well, ho hopefully, hopefully Robin made sure that you didn't get into that problem where you were that late and messing with rent. <laughs> right. Well, right. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's really interesting work. But I, I think your point is valid, whether it's a coach or some kind of internal implementation structure that you are committed to, um, you need some follow-up that makes sure that you continue to execute on the plan. Um, and so having an implementation plan of whatever sort is absolutely critical. Well, all good stuff. And unfortunately, we've kind of run out of time, but it's a good topic. I think out of all the topics that we've kind of discussed, um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm all the podcasts, you know, you, you, you know, execution is kind of, to me, you know, such an important ingredient. So I would like to thank so very much Robin Cabral from Development Consulting Solutions for coming on today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. If you liked today's podcast, please give us a review on your podcasting app to, to help us get the word out. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at www.nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Robin, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how can they reach you? You can just go to my website online. It's developmentconsultingsolutions.com. Um, or find me on LinkedIn at fundraising, coaching, and consulting, but developmentconsultingsolutions.com. You can just Google me and you will find me there. And now you have all my contact information.
Yep. And, uh, you know, it seems to be better when I'm saying this now that um, I always thank all of our nonprofit um, people for the, the work that they do. Our world needs uh, to be better. We need your help. Um, I don't know. It just feels like we're starting to turn the corner. You know, I know the vaccine's coming out, but uh, no, there's, there's going to be change in leadership, which is always a good idea, regardless of what party you're for. Um, so, uh, you know, I just want to thank everybody for, you know, helping us all, um, helping the world be a better place. We certainly need that. And, uh, and these uh, podcasts, I hope, help you to do that. So everybody have a great day, stay safe, take care of your families, and enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy. Enjoy.